everyone, and welcome to the Friday, September 17th edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, redistricting. We get our first look at the maps, a couple of new Secretary of State candidates, and Marionette Miller Meeks catches some attention for a tweet. Hello, everyone. Pardon me. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises, and clearly I haven't had enough coffee yet. With me today are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Career. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Aaron. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. And Gazette columnist Todd Dornman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the On Iowa Politics podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to find your favorite podcast. First up this week, redistricting. The long-awaited day was finally here yesterday, Thursday, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. We got our first look at the first proposal for new political boundaries for Iowa for the next 10 years. Plenty of intrigue, build up, and we now have an idea of what our political boundaries could look like for the next 10 years. Some interesting results in the congressional maps, some interesting pairings in the state house maps, a lot to unpack here. But before we go that far, uh, Todd, I want to start with you because we're about to have a five, ten, however long minutes we spend on this topic here discussion that, if we're going to be honest, could be all for naught. So let's start with the big question first before we dive into the details. Based on what you saw of the maps and what you've heard out there, um, you know, on social media and, and on any legislators you've had a chance to talk to yet, uh, are these maps going to get approved or are we already looking at round two? Well, you know, it's at, at first glance, you might think that this is the sort of map Republicans wouldn't go for it. I mean, it creates a very, you know, a much more democratic first district that includes Lynn County and Johnson County, Cedar Rapids and Iowa City and Scott County, Davenport. Uh, um, a more Republican second district, you know, in, in the second that, that, you know, losing Cedar Rapids, they still have Waterloo and Dubuque, but Dubuque has been trending less favorably for Democrats. The, you know, the fourth district is uh, huge. It's almost half, half the counties in the state, which tells you a little bit about the, the loss of population in rural areas. And then you've got the third district that includes Polk County and then a lot of sort of more sparsely populated counties in South Central Iowa, which looks like it might, you know, if Des Moines dominates that district, it could be a good district for Democrats. So you've only got two of the four that are pretty sure for Republicans. And then you've got this problem that, what is it like, are there, are there 54 incumbents thrown together? Or is that, is that high, so, something like that? Yeah, I mean, it, like almost a, I've yeah. heard upper 50s to even low 60s some, in some. Yeah, people. it's a. Uh, so it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, legislators don't like that don't like having to be, you know, it's one thing if you're in with another party incumbent, but a lot of these are, you know, multiple incumbents from the same party living in the same district. And do you really want to move for a, you know, a job that pays, I forget how much it pays now, but it's supposedly part-time citizen lawmakers. So, yeah, so there's, there's all of those strikes against it, but then, you know, you look at, you look at the, how the maps, are shaped, how they took, how the population is shaped. I mean, it's inevitable that you're going to have 
more districts and cities and urban areas that are growing. And in rural areas, you're just going to have bigger districts because the population is, is declining. So maybe you turn down the first map and you end up with a worse map. The second map could be worse. I mean, you could throw more incumbents together. It's, I don't know that you're going to be able to avoid the, the reality of where the population is in the state and where it's not. And, and so, I mean, they may conclude that they don't want to take that risk and surprise us and go ahead and approve this map and then, you know, get on with the consequences. I mean, after all, they, Republicans are in a great political position regardless of what the map looks like. So I don't know, I don't know how much, you know, how much better it can get for them or, or it, and it could get worse. Yeah, that, that, that's such a great point that, you know, it, it, it might be easy to fall into the line of thinking, well, we don't like this, so scratch it and let's see what the next one looks like. Because that's exactly right. The next one, there's no guarantee that they're going to like the next one even more. And 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 the cynic could say, well, the, the Republicans with their majorities can just push it to the third map and then amend it. Um, but there, even with that, there's, there's dangers. First of all, that's a political calculation that could backfire on them because of the the, the wide popularity of, of Iowa's bipartisan nature of its process. Um, but it's also, I, I think it's important to note and, and check me if I'm wrong on this, Todd, but it's not like, you know, when you say Republicans can amend that third proposal, it's not like they can just start taking their pencil and drawing, you know, some of the crazy gerrymandered maps that we see in other states. They, they still have to play within a, a, a certain set of rules that are, established throughout this whole process, right? It's not like they can just say, okay, we're going to amend that map and draw all these districts any way we want. So they have some constraints even on that third step in the process, as, as I understand it anyways. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe, you know, there are people that are like, well, they should, they should draw, they could draw the congressional maps, you know, themselves. But I mean, they, they care about their districts first and they mm -hmm. care about the legislature first. And so, uh, I mean, it could get to a third map. I mean, I that maybe that's the plan all along that we, you know, they keep saying that they keep pledging that they're going to abide by the process while the process includes this third map that the legislature can draw itself. So that doesn't really tell us that they're not thinking about that. But uh, so, yeah, I I mean, it's it's a guess and we'll we'll see. You know, as, as we have these public hearings and, and and as people look more closely at these maps, there may you know, we may hear more on, you know, what, what they plan to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's get some reaction uh, from some other areas. A Amy with you over there in the Waterloo area. Uh, tell us what you heard from uh, state legislators, especially um, and what they saw and liked or didn't like with these maps. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bill Dotzler came out and he was like, this map is terrible, but it's the best one we've got, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> obviously he's in the minority party, but it, at the same time, you know, he's, he's right. If, if the Democrats can, you know, get this map, that probably is their best case scenario. Um, I think, you know, when I spoke with Bob Kressig, he was, you know, more pragmatic about it. You know, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how the process goes. Um, and even the the Republicans I spoke to, Chad Ingalls, um, whose district has changed wildly. Um, it used to be a lot of Buchanan County. And it, up here. So, someone's at Todd's door. <laughs> the, the FedEx guy just showed up. Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> well, and basically it's 
you've you've got these these districts like um Chad Ingalls district where it's Fayette County and a part of Buchanan County and now he's he's looking at um the other part of Fayette County he still lives within that part but now he's looking at two other counties that he wouldn't have even served that basically creates an open district for him so you've got the problem yes of two incumbents that are going to be battling in in several districts which of course happens um, John Deeth tweeted um, yesterday, you know, that happens quite often, right. um, that you're going to have dozens of districts that are now going to be, like, facing each other. Um, on the other hand, you've got these open seats now where, um, you know, people were used to being represented by somebody that now no longer lives there. And, of course, you're going to have that on the congressional side, too. So let's not forget that while we're also doing these um, House and Senate maps, the congressional districts have have changed pretty quickly. So I think even the Republicans are, are thinking, let's just see how we shake out with the congressional districts like those are sort of top of mind and we want to make sure we get those right and then everything else will just shake out from there but i'm getting the sense that most people are taking a wait and see approach which either means they don't think this map is going to survive or they really want to get a better sense of it and dive into it deeper and talk to their colleagues yeah yeah tom how about over there you uh, i know the quad cities area had one um district in particular that brought three current incumbents into the same district is that right yeah, that's right. So the uh, the new legislative maps um, uh, had some, I guess, unexpected um, surprises uh, for area lawmakers here Thursday. So um, the map would throw together state senators, um, uh, Jim Lycom, uh, a Democrat, uh, Robbie Smith, and uh, Mark Lofgren, Republicans. They're all thrown into the same district. Um and so the, the proposed new 44th Senate district, um, which runs from the eastern part of Davenport all the way into um, Muscatine, um, again, would encompass all three of those uh, lawmakers. Um, like them right now lives on the west side of Davenport. And like I said, as a Democrat, um, Smith lives on the east side of Davenport. It's a Republican. And then you've got Lofgren. Or excuse me, is a yeah uh, Smith is a Republican, and then Lofgren, who lives in Muscatine, also a Republican. And then, uh, meanwhile, state representatives Monica Kurth and uh, Cindy Winkler, both Democrats, who live in the western part of Davenport, um, would uh, also be put into a um, into the same newly drawn uh, House districts. Yeah, so it's it, and that's happening obviously all over, and and it's it's going to be interesting to to see how much that. Um, bothers these state legislators who, again, these are the folks are, who are going to have to vote on these maps up or down. So, so it's important to to keep in mind these these state house um, boundaries and and what state legislators think of them because um, you know ultimately that that that's their jobs um, and their boundaries. Um, as we noted, somewhere in the range of mid to high fifties, maybe even low sixties of number of that's almost a third of the. Or, or maybe even more than a third of the entire legislature that, that got drawn together. Um, it, it, any number of it is normal, uh, as Amy alluded to, that that's going to happen regardless. You're going to have a, a, some of that, maybe even a lot of that. Um, but but is this too much um, for them to, to, to stomach? Maybe, maybe, maybe between that and some partisan concerns Republicans may have, maybe that'll be enough to, to nosedive this first round of maps, but as Todd said, you know, one of the things they'll have to consider in a way is there's no guarantee that the second round gets any better. 
Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more real quick about those congressional maps too, uh, though, um, especially those first and second districts. So, so interesting to me. If And, and Dave Wasserman, um, the national um, kind of uh, political reporter, did some quick analysis and, and ran the 2020 presidential election numbers and applied them to the new congressional maps and, and, and basically what it, they did. And, and, you know, I, I offer the caveat here that, you know, that's just one way to analyze these, you know, you know, we can look at voter registration numbers, in the new districts, congressional voting patterns, blah, blah, blah. But, but, but for, for just the sake of this argument right now, based on those Trump Biden voting numbers, what this new map essentially kind of did was took the first, second and third are all pretty balanced right now, pretty close districts, usually pretty competitive. And the third would remain so, but the first and second would get steered in opposite directions pretty significantly. The first would get pretty significantly more democratic, as, as Todd noted, with Iowa City and Cedar Rapids getting lumped together. And then the second district would get um, a pretty significantly more Republican so yeah. it's it's interesting to me. I guess uh, it, it'll be interesting to, for the for the partisans out there. Are you comfortable with having two competitive congressional districts in the first and second, where any given year you could possibly go two and zero, but also possibly go zero and two, or do you kind of like what they both lean a different way? Most years we're going to get one, and they're going to get the other, and I'm okay with that. Um, um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what the reaction is to that out there as well. And again, we're just looking at presidential numbers. That's a very simple, simplistic way to look at this too. Well, and one, one interesting connection between the legislative districts and this congressional situation is Liz Mathis is now in a, in a district with Todd Taylor, if this were approved. And I, maybe Aaron, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what the, what the formula is for who has to face reelection. And I mean, if you, Obviously, if you've got multiple incumbents in a district and they all plan to run, that would happen next year. I don't know if everybody, you know, if all those Senate seats have to be up next year or if you're in a district by yourself, you, you don't have to face re-election. I, I'm not sure about those rules, but, you know, so Mathis, the, you know, her calculation was I'm in the middle of my four-year Senate term. I'm going to run for Congress. If I lose, I can go back to the Senate. Now the situation has changed a little bit and uh, – well, and, and you know, just to illustrate the the craziness of the of the, how the population is affecting. I mean, we've got we've got you know there are four. Well, this new Senate district here, Senate District Forty Nine, is just is massive. It takes in the rural areas, you know, rural and suburban areas, basically all around Cedar Rapids and Iowa City. So in Lynn and Johnson counties. And right now, that territory is represented by four lawmakers. It's, you know, Kevin Kenney, Tom, Todd Taylor, Zach Walls, and Dan Zumba. Zumba is now up in 48 with two other incumbents <laughs> to, to the north of us. And now in this, in this massive new district that I talked about, the double donut hole, Todd Taylor is the only senator that lives in it. <laughs> Amazing. So, so it's like, yeah, I mean... I don't, and I don't know, you know, how they redraw that to be, 
because the population just is what it is. Right, right. And then, then honestly, and that's part of the process anyways, right? I mean, that's that's the reason we do this is population shifts and, and we need to change our representation based on where people are, right? And, and is that, that's part of the reason we do this every 10 years. So it seems like chaos, but it's to a certain degree, it's intentional chaos, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, you know. Yeah, it's, and, and you've seen big shifts, especially in suburban areas. You've seen... Right. I mean, where I live in Marion, you know, population grew 19% over the last decade. So that's going to, those are going to make a difference, North Liberty, Western suburbs of Des Moines. I mean, that's, and you're going to take, that's representation that's going to be taken from the rural areas. I mean, that's just, you're going to end up, like I say, big rural districts, lots of urban suburban districts. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned Liz Mathis. I would also note that the new boundaries would potentially shake up the um, 20, uh, <laughs> 2022 race uh, for the uh, Iowa's second congressional district. So yeah. Iowa City Democrat and State Representative um, Christina Bohannon announced last month a challenge to Miller Meeks in Iowa's second district. But under the new maps, Iowa City would be, brought, would be drawn into Iowa's first district, not the second. Um, Bohannon hasn't publicly commented on the new maps and, and whether that would uh, change her candidacy. Um, and it's also worth noting, though, that according to guidance from the Iowa Secretary of State, congressional candidates do not technically need to live in the district they're running for. They just need to be residents of the state. But um, I, I, I think it will be interesting. Um, you know, Bohannon announced her candidacy, um, you know, assuming that, uh, you know, she would have a, a, a matchup against um Miller Meeks, uh, you know, freshman Republican uh, congresswoman who, um, you know, won that seat in the 2020 election by just a mere six votes. Mm -hmm. Now, if this, you know, map holds up as proposed, um, you know, she would face a mashup against um, against Ashley Henson. Right. Yeah. And you've got you've got Mathis and Bohannon in the first district and, you know, the the calc- I've heard people say that they would expect maybe Henson to to move into the into the second, like you say, and you know, and yeah, I, and you know, and you know, it's a better Republican district if, if you know whoever won that primary would be pretty well positioned to win. But then, uh, you would, then what do Mathis and Bohannon do? I mean, that's that's the other question. Mathis had a statement yesterday that seemed to indicate that she was. You know, she was saying, you know, whatever happens, I'll be looking forward to meet the people in the, you know, new parts of the district. So I don't think she has any plans on moving any place. Yeah, but if uh, Henson moves into the second district, then you have a potential primary with her yep. and Miller Meeks, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yep. Because Unless I, Miller Meeks moves into the third. <laughs> yeah. And, but she, I don't, she's I don't, close to that there. And I guess Otomo, isn't she? Moved to Des Moines. Yeah. Yeah. Wapolo County. Yeah. She, she is. Yeah. She is close. But I don't know. Personally, I guess I don't, I don't necessarily see that happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Given, given how things went for her in the 2020 election, you know, I, I don't know the willingness there to want to run in a, first district that now becomes even more democratic, you know, picking up or putting, lumping together Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, and Davenport and shedding a lot of those um, rural counties to the West that, um, you know, helped, helped boost her, you know, helped her, you know, get over the finish line, albeit just barely over um, Democrat Rita Hart last year. Right. Yeah. No, I wondered if she'd move 
West and go to the third and rather take on Cindy Axney than Ooh. face uh, face yeah. uh, Ashley Henson in a primary. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. As, as James Lynch, uh, our colleague who, who couldn't be here with us uh, this week, he joked last night that if, if these maps – Hold the big, the biggest winners might be realtors across Iowa. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah Zillow running slow. On the, <laughs> right, on the, right, right. <laughs> and the moving it's... companies. <laughs> so it'll be interesting, needless to say. And, and as I said at the top, but we just talked for fifteen minutes, and it could be about maps that have no future, and and we'll have to come back and talk about a different set of maps on a future on Iowa politics. But hey, that wouldn't be so bad, right? To give us something to talk about. That's right. <laughs> it's always good to have something to do. So we'll obviously uh, watch this and the special, we've got listening sessions in the meantime and the special session isn't until October 5th. So uh, we've got a few weeks before we even know the, the fate of, of these maps and, and whether there's another round coming or whether that's it. We'll obviously cover that on future episodes of the podcast. It'll be a very special session. Very special. <laughs> I'm, I'm personally, as someone who's going to have to cover it, I'm hoping it's the baseline minimum for a special <laughs> session and no extra special, no very special, just a nice special session, please. Can, can that be it? That's what my fingers are crossed for. <laughs> uh, this week we got our first Secretary of State candidates to challenge Republican incumbent Paul Pate. A couple of Democrats made their announcement uh, and a couple of county auditors. In Clinton County, Eric Van Lanker and in Lynn County, Joel Miller. Um, Tom, I want to ask you first how familiar you are and and I, because I'm not at all um, with uh, Clinton County uh, Auditor Eric Van Lanker. Uh, Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller I, I'm a little more familiar with because he's you know, spoken up at certain times on certain issues around elections. Um, um, but uh, Mr. Van Lanker, I'm not as familiar with. Uh, is there anything you know about him uh, from over there or can tell us about? Um, very little, unfortunately. I guess, you know, what I what I can say is that, um, you know, he, he has been, um, you know, somewhat vocal and outspoken um, about the recent changes um, that uh, state lawmakers made, the, the, the myriad changes that they made to the state's um, election laws and um, how that will impact um, county election officials and, and county auditors um, in conducting elections going forward. Um, and um, he also uh, served as president of the Iowa State Association of County Auditors, um, I think back in, in 2014. But, you know, he's he's been very vocal and, and uh, very um, critical of um, Republican state lawmakers and the governor who signed that um that legislation into law um, and will take effect for um, the city and school elections this fall, um, you know, talking about, you know, um, how this, um, you know, will, it could potentially restrict access to, to the ballot box, um, you know, shortening the early voting window, um, you know, placing some um, added, you um, restrictions on um, who and, and how people can return absentee ballots, um, you know, shortening uh, the window for requesting and, you know, turning in an absentee ballot. 
Um, in his statement announcing his candidacy, um, he talks about how um, Iowans have never needed a, a voting advocate more than they do at this moment. Um, so yeah, that's I guess that's what I can say about uh, Eric Van Lanker. No, that that's good. That's more that's more than I would have been able to. So that's interesting, and certainly that message will play well in the Democratic primary. Uh, right. Speaking of which, which he'll have to face Joel Miller. And um, Todd, he's from your neck of the woods there. I, now Joel Miller, I, for those of us who follow these kinds of things super closely, this announcement uh, surprises approximately none of us, right? I mean, this this was this was pretty yeah. easy to see coming. Yeah, he had been talking about doing this for a while and had been making some some moves. And uh, if you ask me if I know anything about Joel Miller, I, I think we'd probably need to have a separate podcast on all the news that Joel Miller has made during his <laughs> 14 years as auditor. He he uh, tried to, back in 2010, he tried to hire a deputy auditor who could do some actual auditing of county finances and the supervisor's wouldn't let him do it. And so he went to court. It was a four-year legal battle in the middle of that. Uh, one of his former employees, who was then the construction manager for the county, who had one of the great political names, Garth Fagerbaki, ran nice. against him. And Miller walloped him. And then, oh, poor Garth. Uh, I know. And a few, But a few weeks, but the story ended ha- happily for Garth because uh, not long after the election, the supervisors voted to give about half of Miller's duties to Fockerbaki as the, as the, like a facility, they made him the facilities manager. So he, he didn't win, but he got most of the, a lot of the duties that the auditor was supposed to take care of. And, you know, he's, he's tangled with the board of supervisors a lot. He's, he, you know, in 2016, I think it was, he, he handily defeated a democratic challenger in the primary that was backed by pretty much every democratic county elected official. And then in the general election, that primary opponent went to vote absentee in person at the auditor's office, took the ballot out of away from the booth and went down the hallway and filled it out. And Miller tried to have him arrested for election misconduct. Wow. And then, the, and then the county attorney wouldn't, wouldn't charge. And so then there yeah. was, so yeah, but you know, he's at his best sort of when he's kind of fighting for greater transparency and more participation in voting. And, and he has fought those fights. And I think, you know, generally that's been good, but when he gets a little bit petty and goes after his former opponents and tries to, you know, exact some revenge sometimes over minor matters, that's, that's kind of, you know, the downside, but you know, I think he'll be a, a decent candidate. I don't know who will come out of that primary. I, I haven't seen the, the Clinton auditor and haven't, don't know much about him, like Aaron, like uh, Aaron said, but uh, yeah, I mean, well, and, and Miller was also one of the uh, the rogue auditors last year who right. sent out the filled in absentee ballot request forms. So right. Right. maybe and, he get one. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, it, it, uh, uh, and we don't know. I mean, there could be others still filing into this primary too. So um, yeah, well, and. If if Miller wins, Peyton Miller are certainly they're both Lynn County guys and they know each other pretty well and I don't I don't detect a lot of uh goodwill. So <laughs> that could be an interesting general election knowing that they're both personalities who are pretty willing to, to throw a punch. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so speaking of uh, Paul Pate, um, Amy, I'll put you on the spot here. Uh, Paul Pate's the waiting on the other side of this primary next year. And, and obviously I think it's safe to say as, as Tom and, and, and Todd both brought up talking about the candidates in their areas that Paul Pate's going to hear about that new election bill um, in, in that campaign. Um, I'm curious if you have any hunch um, and sense from just uh, how upset people in general, you know, voters are about that new law. Um, you know, Pate survived voter ID four years ago against Deidre DeGere. Vote, the voter ID had been implemented at that point, and, and Pate still won that re-election. Um, does he survive this one too, or is this a bigger deal? Is this one uh, going to hurt Paul Pate regardless of uh, who he's going up against next year? I think it'll be interesting. You know, he had um, a decent answer for the voter ID people that were like, what about the people that can't get voter ID? And that answer was, we will personally at our expense mail an ID card to everyone. So that did sort of placate a lot of people. And I think, you know, they took that in good faith. And um, honestly, there, there weren't a ton of people that had come out afterwards and said, you know, I wasn't able to vote. Although those people generally aren't the kind of people that come to newspapers and tell them I wasn't able to vote too. So there's that. Um, it'll, I think it'll really depend on this election. If you're seeing a lot of long lines, if you're seeing people that um, are missing deadlines in mass, if you're seeing people in nursing homes that can't get absentee ballots in time, things like that will rile up people. And I think that might turn the tide against him. Um, but if it all goes off without a hitch, maybe it's just another thing in the background that we say, oh, it's fine. You know, it didn't bother us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. And, and voter ID, too, is one of those issues that um, for all the complaints that uh, people who are against those kinds of laws have, and, and I certainly understand where they're coming from. When you kind of look at public polling numbers, usually voter ID does okay. In in general, people out there are fine with with being required to, to have an ID uh, to vote. Now, when you talk about making voting harder in some cases, and I know um, Republicans will argue that they didn't, but um, the facts are very clear that they very much did in certain cases. So when you talk about um, making voting a little harder, having to go through maybe one more hoop, not having more early voting options. If that starts to impact people's ability to get a ballot cast, then um, I agree. Then, then and, and if that starts to show up in elections, then, then that may make a little more difference. Um, we'll see. And we'll see if any other Democrats announce. Um, before we go this week, one more thing uh, to talk about. Um, speaking of Marionette Miller Meeks and um, the impact of the new maps on her. She was in the news this week for another reason when she retweeted a satirical news account, a news story that suggested President Biden, again, satirically, was withholding VA benefits um, from veterans who were unvaccinated. Um, Tom, you wrote about that and the, and the kerfuffle that, that followed and, and maybe what was most interesting to me, which was that um, the Meeks, the Miller Meeks camp did not back down from that as well. And in fact, in many ways, they doubled down on that. So, so tell us about that, Tom. Yeah, that was uh, also um, surprising uh, to me as well, that uh, the, the Miller Meeks campaign decided to, to double down on that. Um, and it's it's worth noting that uh, Miller Meeks is a, um, a an ophthalmologist. She's she's a physician. Um, but uh, maybe more importantly, she's also a member of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, 
as well as um, the House um, Select Committee on, on COVID-19. So, you know, one would think then that, you know, she would be, um, you know, privy to information and, uh, you know, would have received some sort of notification or, again, had access to information to know whether the Biden administration, um, you know, had, um, had, had made such a move or issued any sort of direction to, to the VA related to um, health benefits for, for unvaccinated veterans. Um, the, um, you know, the, the other thing worth pointing out is that um, the satirical website, the, um, uh, the story that she, um, she retweeted, um, the satirical news website includes the following disclaimer on its site. Everything on this website is made up. Don't rely on anything said here. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's fairly clear, you know, that this is a satirical news website. And it was fairly clear, um, you know, if you, if you read the story um, that, you know, that it was, it was probably not above board, right? There were enough red flags um, in how the story was written and, and some of the made up quotes that it included and attributed to President Biden that you would be like, okay, something's wrong here. Um, but so, makes- so, so yeah. Tom, if I can interject, then maybe the worst news out of all this is that Marionette Miller Meeks is one of our, our, our industry's despised news consumers. She just read the headline and didn't read the story. <laughs> right. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way that it seemed or the way that it came off. Um, and so, yeah, you mentioned that uh, she kind of doubled down. So in, in a statement, um, she acknowledged sharing and retweeting the, the fake news article. Um, and in her, um, her retweet, she added that if true, this is insane. But in her, in her statement, responding to, you know, criticisms about um, sharing this, this fake news account, um, she went on to say that the story and website is obviously satire, um, but that it makes a powerful point. President Biden's executive orders about COVID-19 have been classic examples of government overreach. And these days, the unbelievable has has become reality. Um, so she notes that that she goes, well, I, I had this this, you know, caveat in my tweet saying, if true, this is insane. But then in her statement, acknowledges that, oh, yeah, the, the story and website is obviously satire. Um, and, and nothing in Miller Meek's tweet sharing the fictional story, however, um, you know, indicates that it's um, satirical and instead insinuates that it might be true. But then later coming out and saying, oh, no, I knew, I knew it was fake. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I think you covered it well. I know that there's not much more to add there other than, again, I'm disappointed that it, it, it just struck me that. Uh, uh, just read the headline. Come on, folks, click. Give us the clicks. Well, read the story too, and well, then uh, all this could have been avoided. What's even sadder about it is that she she got in this same kind of trouble before when she was uh, the d- director of the Department of Public Health. She spoke at a at the World Food Prize and said that Mountain Dew was the number one item bought by people on food assistance. And afterwards, people were like, "Where did you get that?" And it turned out she'd seen it somewhere on the internet, couldn't remember where, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, you know, account for it. And it turned out to be wrong that they, first, I don't think they keep track of things that granular, at that granular level. And, and second, that, uh, you know, milk or something was actually the, the top thing bought. So 
yeah, she didn't, I guess she didn't learn much from that experience that, you know, everything you see online isn't, and, you know, you have a responsibility as someone who is an opinion leader to like, you know, not tweet, just lies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah I mean. That's, you can just start with that. That's kind of a basic. <laughs> we're, we're, we're waging this very real war with, with misinformation. It, it'd be nice if we didn't have to worry about satire accidentally slipping in there, too. Um, no, the, that's the hard are. thing about satire is the people reading it have to be smart enough to know that it's satire. <laughs> so that's that's always difficult. <laughs> and there's some terrible satire websites out there too that are written poorly as well. Right. Well, and, and the other thing is, it, and this is a, your depressing thought for the day, is we're, we're kind of at a point in the world and our country right now where it's satire is, it's hard <laughs> to tell the difference yeah. between satire mm. and there, there are definitely times where I see an Onion article. Well, actually, I, I take it back. I see a real news article, and I think it's an Onion article, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, so on that happy thought, everyone, have a great weekend. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of On Iowa Politics. Thank you for listening. We hope it was worth your time and that we didn't leave you on too much of a downer note there. If you do still like the show, we appreciate it. Subscribe and tell a friend. Then you can send fan mail and your therapist bills to podcasts at thegazette.com. <laughs> Don't forget the work of everyone you heard today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mesa City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and Cedar Rap Gazette. Basically all the big papers in Iowa except for a few that shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> Paleo will play us out this weekend if you know a talented band or I am musician who should be featured on our show send us a sound file for Amy, Todd, Tom and our producer Stephen I'm Aaron Murphy thanks for listening along the side of the bow Lucky waves We live out In the clouds Who stir And spill On the wind Whipped moon Like a cuticle rune Filed away And never Read By the wind In her swoon for her bloom, bearing womb, every kiss was her wish for rain. But the rain would go mad, become snow, with a laugh along Long Island Sound, where the icebergs conspire. Just like barbs on a wire Along, long island Along, long island Along, long island Sound Do I bring out the worst In the oceans? What are the waves Spell out your name Along, long island
for their meats along Long Island Sound where the skies are all scraped by our empire state along Long Island. 